Warning, this show may contain adult language that is not suitable for all audiences. This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter. Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and we have a lot to talk about in the world of mixed martial arts. I uh, recorded a show last week before I went out to Prince Edward Island. Beautiful, beautiful province. If you uh, are living in Canada or, or elsewhere, I recommend it. Lovely place, great place to be. Uh, got to spend some, uh, a lot of time by the ocean and just kind of refresh, hit the reset button and enjoy a little bit of time with, uh, with my lovely wife. It's our 15 year anniversary coming up in uh, just a couple weeks. So we got to, uh, you know, enjoy some time together. It was our first time traveling with no kids for more than one night in 12 years. That's a long, long time. So that was a nice, nice getaway for us. And uh, again, hit the refresh button, refreshed, got to catch up on Contender Series, fantastic episode uh, last week. And of course, uh, UFC on ESPN, Santos versus Hill, a fun event, very fun event. Can't say enough about it. 10 fights, 10 finishes, doesn't get much better than that. And the first fight in the night was uh, an interesting one because you had Myra Bueno Silva against Stephanie Egger. And that fight ended in a weird circumstance. There was a submission applied by Silva. Egger, you know, according to Silva, taps. She breaks the hold. The referee doesn't see it. What do you do? Well, what you do is something called polling. And that's going to be the subject of today's monologue. What a night this Saturday proved to be. Ten finishes in ten fights at UFC Fight Night. Santos versus Hill. But we're actually going to look at the very first fight of the night. It was about between Myra Bueno Silva and Stephanie Egger. I'm going to do something a little bit different than usual and provide you with an explainer on a refereeing procedure utilized by Chris Tognoni in this fight referred to as polling, which is the best practice for determining the correct outcome of a fight where a sequence is unclear to the in-cage official. Coincidentally, I learned about this in the refereeing course that I just took two weeks ago at the Association of Boxing Commission's annual conference in Niagara Falls, New York. Let's take a look at the sequence in question. Bueno Silva locks in the armbar on Egger and suddenly, from the vantage point of both the referee, Chris Tognoni, and the viewing audience, releases the hold. This is great sportsmanship from Bueno Silva, who feels the tap and doesn't want to further injure her opponent. But it is also potentially a very costly error, because Egger can't stop the fight. Bueno Silva can't stop the fight. Only Tognoni, as the referee and sole arbiter of the contest, can decide when the fight ends. So Tognoni has the decision to make in the heat of the moment. He can either A do what he did and call a stop to the contest, or B, tell the fighters to continue because he didn't see the tap. Judging by Egger's body language and the lack of an immediate protest, I feel that he makes the correct decision because it gives him options. Bueno Silva urges him to check the replay, and that is what Tagnoni's best option is in the situation, and he subsequently signals for it. Tagnoni places the fighters in neutral corners, which is to prevent coaches or anyone else in the corner from getting involved in or disrupting the process. Now, while this isn't absolutely necessary because he's already called off the fight, it's a veteran move from Tagnoni because it prevents emotions from getting high while the correct determination is made. The replay proves inconclusive, and Tagnoni proceeds to the next option to determine whether there was indeed a submission. And that's what this video is about. It's a seldom used mechanism called polling, which relies on an outside official to help make a determination. Polling allows Tagnoni to check with any cage side official who had a better vantage point to confirm whether there was a tap or, in other instances, whether a fight-ending foul occurred or to determine the legality of a strike. In this case, it's Judge Ron McCarthy, who you can see right here has a clear view of the in-cage official's blind side. 
After consulting with McCarthy, Tognoni expresses to the commission that McCarthy absolutely 100% saw a tap, and in doing so, it provided the commission with the assurance that Egger did tap without a shadow of a doubt. Tognoni then once again signals that the fight is over, and informs Bueno Silva that there was indeed a tap. Tognoni, sensing that Bueno Silva is getting emotional, calms her down by thanking her and commending her on her great sportsmanship. Egger then starts to half-heartedly contest the result, and has since taken to social media to say that she will appeal the loss. Good luck to her, because overturning the decision would undermine both Tognoni and McCarthy. This is a rare instance that we seldom see in the UFC in the aftermath of a fight being stopped. One such instance, where we've seen it previously, was the final sequence of Musasi vs. Weidman at UFC 210 in Buffalo, where Dan Mergliotta consulted with Big John McCarthy to confirm the legality of a knee. It is used more often than not in the case of a foul where a timeout is called, where a referee will immediately resume action if it is determined that there was no foul presence. So hats off to Chris Tognoni, who absolutely did the right thing here, and also to officials Blake Grice and Jaron Vallel, who taught the refereeing course to me just weeks ago, teaching me this information about polling so that I could relay it to you in real time this week. I'm Aaron Bronstetter, and this is The Monologue. Alright, there you go. An explanation of polling and that practice that is seldom used at the end of fights by uh, referees, more typically used in the uh, midst of the action if uh, a foul is committed. They can kind of pull the cage side judges. Did you see anything? If they uh, missed a foul, I poke something along those lines. It's used a little bit more uh, loosey-goosey, I would say. Well, not loosey-goosey, but it's used a little bit more informally, I guess, is probably the best way to put it uh, in those situations, whereas it's a little bit more formal when a fight has been stopped because you have more time to consider all of the different options, like Chris Tognoni did. So kudos to him. Uh, made a, a great decisions in the heat of the moment, and that's why you like to have uh, veteran officials in there for these uh, UFC fights. And speaking of which, we had a, I hate to talk about this because I, I was kind of dragged into this by a, a Texas-based uh, judge named Seth Fuller, who uh, made a, a video on YouTube. I don't know if, if you haven't seen it. I would recommend watching it. It's an interesting video, except he dragged my name through the mud as, uh, as part of this video, saying that I, I wasn't doing uh, good journalism by suggesting that perhaps the judges that were assigned to the prelims at UFC 277 were not seasoned judges. Now, I did point out that it was specifically those that do not have a lot of major card experience, major promotions. And I stand by that. And I think that this whole situation kind of proves my point because had there been, if he's that confident that his scorecard was the correct one, that he's scoring Dante Mays getting the third round against Hamdi Abdelwahad, and he does a great job of explaining it in his video. Again, I, I, I love that he's showing his work. But if he believes that that was the right scorecard, had there been a more a more a judge with more experience doing major fights, maybe he doesn't get his back up like he does here and, and feel the need to produce a video two weeks after the fact and put it on YouTube and, you know, come at the announce team and come at me. Maybe he takes a step back and said, hey, you know, Chris, Chris Lee was judging this fight with me. He also saw it for Dante Mays. So at least I know that I'm not crazy here. I've, I've got a, a, a judge who's done many major events that has the same scorecard as me. So great. If, if people that don't know the scoring criteria and, uh, you know, are just armchair quarterbacks are telling me how to do my job. I have a judge who's judged hundreds of fights here, many, many UFC cards for many, many years, who agrees with me. And that's how you avoid a situation that now has the 
Texas Commission responding to emails and you know, I actually feel bad for, in this situation for uh, for Seth because I think he a, misinterpreted me and thought it was a criticism of him when it's actually not. My point that I was getting across was I want to see more judges like Seth and more judges like Aaron Menard who was on that card as well. And more judges like uh, Matheson and Armstrong. I want them to get more opportunities. I don't want them to get less opportunities. I want them to be able to judge major promotions because that's how you become a better judge is by being thrown into the, the, the heat of calling a major promotion in front of a full arena that you know millions, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are watching, if not millions of people are watching worldwide. And to have that experience of being in under those lights. So I, I just the reason why I put that out there is because I think that those judges have a better situation, a better chance of succeeding if they're paired with judges who have done it before, have a lot of experience judging major events. That, that was my only point. But for whatever reason, my words got twisted. A website kind of reported that made it seem like I was ripping on regional judges, which is the complete opposite. So I'm planning on speaking with, uh, having a conversation with Seth and just kind of, you know, just an informal chat and kind of trying to smooth things over here because I, you know, I feel bad that he went and recorded this video. And if, any for any reason it was because of something you know one of my tweets i feel bad about that but i i just think that he misinterpreted what my tweet was about it's the, it's more directed towards the commission like i think if you're the commission you're going to empower these regional judges if you're putting them on major assignments with judges who have had those major assignments before it's not rocket science so I would recommend watching the guy's video. I mean, it's not a bad video. He does a good job of explaining his methodology for why he gave Maze that round. I think that's good. It's good to see. It's not something you should be doing if you're a judge because the commission doesn't want you to do that unless you have their consent. But he felt like he needed to, I guess, vindicate himself. I don't even know why he, he recorded. I couldn't tell you. But what I will say is that, uh, yeah, he, uh, he kind of threw, dragged my name through the mud as a result. And uh, I don't really appreciate that because I feel like I actually have the backs of these regional judges. I was one week separated from taking a course, a judging course, one week to the day when I made that tweet. It's not like I'm coming after judges. I'm not trying to drag anybody's name through the mud. I'm trying to build people up, not break them down. That's all I'll say about that. Let's talk about UFC Fight Night. Hill versus Santos. We'll start with the main event. Jamal Hill gets a finish. Fourth round, two and a half minutes in. Santos was up on the cards on two judges scorecards going into the third to the fourth round, which surprised me personally. I thought I, I thought you could make a case to Hill in all three of those rounds, but again I, I'd have to go back and watch once more before I make that determination uh with, with confidence. But Jamal Hill looked great. I thought he was sharp, I thought he was landing the better punches. I thought that in the I think it was the third round where Santos was grapple, 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 or maybe the second round. I thought that Hill was landing the better strikes, even though he was on bottom for a lot of those and was defending for a lot of those. I thought that he was landing the better counters and uh, was doing a good job of stifling Santos. But again, doesn't really matter. Hill gets the win. Hill calls out Yuri Prokhazhka. Obviously, I think the Glover and Yuri fight's going to happen next. So we got kind of five players right now in this division. You got, of course, the champion, Yuri Prokhazhka. You got Glover Teixeira, who I think is going to challenge for the title next. Then you've got the next tier of guys that are kind of waiting. You've got Magomed Ankalaev, who just beat Anthony Smith. You've got Jan Vlahovic, who beat Rakic. And now you've got Jamal Hill, 
who beat Thiago Santos. Then you have some of the other guys that uh, have, you know, that are kind of waiting in the wings. You got your Dominic Reyes's, you got your Uzdemir's. A lot of these uh, fighters that are on the come up, you know, that are trying to get back into the mix, really. But there's going to be an odd man out here because I think that one of Jamal Hill, Ankalaev, or Jan Bojovic is going to be waiting on the sidelines. I think that the UFC is going to say, hey, who wants this fight? And the, the first two to enthusiastically accept will battle it out to see who the number one contender. I don't think Jamal Hill is going to jump the line. I mean, are you going to put Jamal Hill ahead of Ankalaev, who beat Santos as well? Or ahead of Jan Bojovic? I don't know. But I think Jamal Hill is a very, very talented fighter. I think that he's somebody that you will definitely see fight for a title one day. Only 31 years of age, uh, which for light heavyweight is still pretty young. He's still pretty young in his mixed martial arts career. His uh, debut was less than five years ago, his professional debut. So, I mean, he's uh, he's been making big strides in his career. So, kudos to Jamal Hill. Co-main event, Jeff Neal looks better than ever. Fantastic performance against Vicente Luque. Becomes the first person to score a TKO or KO over Luque in Luque's entire career. Wow. Big statement from Jeff Neal. And uh, I thought, you know, I always give Coach Saif Sayud credit for his corner work. I thought... The way that he got in Neil's face between rounds two and three was what brought Neil back, what snapped him back into the fight. Because I thought the second round, Luque, um, I think the judges gave it to Neil, but Luque put up a good fight in that second round. He kind of got back into the fight, allowed himself to clear the cobwebs off. Um, And I think that Safe Saoud getting in Jeff Neil's face in between those rounds, two and three, really got Neil off the stool with intention. And... That was enough for him to put Vicente Luque away with with a, a KO. Again, the only person to ever do it against Luque, who's had, who, what, like 25, 30 fights? Like, I'm going to go pull it up just so I... has 31 fights. He's the only person to uh, score a, a KO or TKO against him. That's that's pretty impressive for Jeff Neal. And uh, I thought the Gilbert Burns callout was perfect, too. It doesn't seem like Burns versus Masvidal is happening, and I think that that's the fight Burns wants. But uh, Burns versus Neal, you know, Burns, he gets the itch. I think he knows that he's kind of in line for a big fight, but he, he can get that itch. And if he's offered Jeff Neal main event for a fight, maybe he takes it. Maybe he takes it. We'll see. But uh, Jeff Neal with a stellar performance. And then we saw our ultimate fighter finales, Mohamed Usman as a sizable underdog. Knocks out Zach Paunga in the second round, 36 seconds in. Seemed like a lot of the first round was him kind of getting Ponga's rhythm down. I believe they probably trained together in the past because Ponga trains at uh, Team Elevation, where I know Usman has done some cross-training in the past. So I don't know if they've trained together. I know they trained together on the show, but I think they also trained together uh, before the show. I'd have to find, you know, find that out for sure, but I know that Usman has done some cross-training with Team Elevation out in Denver. But Ponga, I think if he can get back down to light heavyweight, he could be a problem in the UFC. I think that's probably a better weight class for him. He's really quick at heavyweight, really fast, but... Yeah, I mean, we saw him take that massive punch from Uzman. So we'll see what the future holds for him. If he's, I think he'll probably stay on the UFC roster if I had to guess. But Usman becomes uh, one of the first pair of brothers to win the Ultimate Fighter. Of course, Kamaru Usman, the uh, welterweight champion. You may have heard of him. He won the Ultimate Fighter as well on the uh, Team Black Zillions against Team American Top Team uh, season. Uh, team American Top Team, redundant to say. So it's just American Top Team. But... The first brothers to both win the Ultimate Fighter. Kudos to the Usman family as a whole. And Juliana Miller defeats Brogan Walker. This was a fight that I thought was going to go completely differently. 
I took Walker, and man, I had a you know for my TSN edge recommended play, and I had some egg on my face, and I thought she had a very very clear path to victory if she would have just stayed a distance, used her jab, kept Miller away, pieced her up on the feet with the jab. Instead, she starts to grapple with Miller, and that that's Miller's by far Miller's best path best path to victory is the grappling. And ultimately, even though it was a TKO, it was the, the grappling and her grappling acumen that got her into the position to, to get that finish. So kudos to Juliana Miller. She's a colorful individual, very, very uh, fun on the mic, <laughs> kind of an interesting character. So uh, I, you always like seeing fighters like that get, uh, get into the UFC. I think we're going to see a lot of unpredictable, weird stuff from her in the future, which you got to love it. That's the, the fun part of covering the sport. Uh, Sergey Spivak defeats Augusto Sakai. By TKO, Spivak has, just keeps improving and getting better and better and better. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of good things from him going forward. And I think that, that's a good win, Augusto Sakai. I know Sakai is kind of on a bit of a skid right now, but for a time, I believe he was a top 10 heavyweight, right? So to, And he was ranked going into this fight. So kudos to Spivak because now he's in the rankings and I think he's going to have a lot of really interesting matchups. I think his skill set is a difficult one for other heavyweights to combat. I think that he, you know, that range of skills that he has in terms of his grappling is something that will get, you know, get him pretty far in this uh, division if he can avoid taking big shots. If he can get it to the ground, I think that, you know, his nickname's the Polar Bear for a reason. It just mauls people on the ground. Terrence McKinney, a new father as of uh, yesterday. It might have been today, actually. I think his, his, his partner gave birth, I believe it was August 9th, which is today, uh, at least at the, the time of this recording. Comes a dad and also gets a massive win over Eric Gonzalez. Two minutes and 17 seconds in the first round. I mean, this guy's all action all the time. you got to love what he brings to the table. I think he's got a, a phenomenal future ahead of him. You know, the, the problem that I see with him, I mean, he got rocked by Gonzalez a little bit in that fight too. You know, if, if he's going to have a kill-or-be-killed attitude, he's got to work on his defense a little bit. But I think that if you take his wrestling background, his submission skills, his striking skills, the guy's just got it all. He's got everything. He's got fantastic athleticism, speed, timing. Everything you want to see from somebody who has the makings of being a top 10 lightweight. And I think he will be one one day. I think that McKinney, the sky's the limit for him. It really is. Mikhail Oleksiejczyk ends the UFC tenure of Sam Alvey just under two minutes into the first round. It looked like Oleksiejczyk was just like, I'm just going to keep hitting this guy until he goes down, until this fight's over. He... he Proceeded with intention. I think Oleg Zaychuk in middleweight is going to be a problem. That guy is so good at applying pressure to his opponents. And if they can't take the heat, they better get out of the kitchen. Because Oleg Zaychuk is going to bring that heat every single fight. Alvi, uh, as of today, no longer on the UFC roster. Became something of a punchline. The longest uh, winless streak. He had a no contest or a draw in there. Longest winless streak in UFC history. Nine fight winless streak. Last win was against... Jean Vellante, a split decision back in uh, June of 2018, four years ago. Also had that really nice win against Marcin Pracniel back in February of 2018. Pracniel's looked good in uh, recent fights. Had that win over Rashad Evans. Wins over uh, Nate Marquardt. It's a good win. Alex Nicholson, King Ke- Kevin Casey, Eric Spicely, Dan Kelly. He's beaten some good guys. Dylan Andrews looked like a good fighter. Beat Gerald Mirshaw on the regional scene. Big Jay Silva, who was a pretty big deal for a time in the, the regional scene uh, over in, in Edmonton at MFC. He's, uh, he's had a good career. Much respect to Sam Alvey. I know that like a lot of people have turned him into this punchline, but yeah, he's had a good career. I know it hasn't gone well recently, but uh, 
wishing him and his family all the best going forward. I think that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up in the PFL. Try to get that million dollars. Brian Battle defeats Takashi Sato. This was a phenomenal knockout. And Brian Battle at welterweight is going to be a problem. This guy's been getting better and better with every single fight. Seems like he's dialed in right now. 44 seconds into the first round. Uh, Corey McKenna scores a Von Flew submission against Miranda Granger. First female UFC fighter to score a Von Flew in, in uh, the promotion's history. So kudos to her. She says it's nothing she even practices all that often, but uh, you wouldn't have guessed it from watching her. And she looked very good in this fight. I think she's got a, a very bright future as well. Still super young. I think might still be the youngest female fighter on, in the, uh, the promotion. And, uh, of course, Myra Bueno Silva defeats Stephanie Edgar. We discussed that a little bit earlier. Fight bonuses go to Jamal Hill and Tiago Santos for fight of the night. Performance bonuses. Was hoping everybody would get one again, but uh, not so tonight. Uh, on that night, uh, Jeff Neal, Mohamed Usman, and Brian Battle all bring home performance bonuses. Kudos to all of them. Great fight night card. You know, a lot of people, of course, going in, you see the card, you kind of judge it and say, ah, oh, this isn't the best, uh, most that card, blah, blah, blah. But uh, if you're a fan of the sport and you watch them, oftentimes these, these kind of fight cards end up delivering the goods. Doesn't mean you need to watch them. Hey, if you want to take a weekend off, you, this card's not for you. No problem. But uh, this is the kind of stuff you could miss, that you risk missing if you uh, miss a card. I thought it was a really uh, fantastic card. And we've got a fight night card in San Diego this weekend, headlined by... A man who trains one block from the arena, Dominic Cruz, against Cheeto Vera, who trains, what, like three hours from the arena. <laughs> so two, two guys based in California. Before we get to that, let's talk about some of the other uh, news. Nice to see Jeremy Kennedy back in action, taking on Aaron Pico on the Bellator side, Bellator 286. Speaking of Canadians in Bellator, you got uh, Aaron Jeffrey taking on Austin Vanderford this weekend. Huge opportunity for him. Vanderford ranked number two. Aaron Jeffrey, excited about the opportunity. Just spoke to him, actually, before... Uh, I started the show. I just recorded with him. And we're starting to see a lot of fight announcements come down. Big ones. Big, big, big ones. You got UFC 281 Madison Square Garden in November. Now officially being headlined by Israel Adesonia and Alex Pejera. What a fight. What a fight. Although we knew it was coming. It's not like I, I'm, I, you know. I'm not going to give people a pat on the back for the obvious fight, but uh, I'm just glad it got made. I'm glad that we're going to get to watch it. This, to me, is the most interesting fight for Israel that we'll have seen. I I can't guarantee it's going to be a phenomenal fight. I mean, I know a lot of people are saying it's going to be great. I think it could end up being a chess match. But uh, if this ends up being a high-level kickboxing affair with these guys striking for five rounds, that's exciting. Because Alec Bejeda, for me, uh, you know, for my money, I think is the best kickboxer in the world today. And he's looked mighty good in the UFC as well. And I'm sure it's one that Israel wants to get back. But at the same time, it's easier said than done against a guy as good as Alex Bejeda. I think that uh, that's going to be a really intriguing matchup. And uh, it also looks like we're going to see Michael Chandler against Dustin Poirier on that same card. That's what the, uh, the signs are pointing to right now. And if that happens... Who we? That's an incredible fight. It's been a while since we've seen Dustin Poirier in there. I think people forget how good this guy is because he's coming off a loss to uh, Charles Oliveira. You look at the uh, the line right now uh, on FanDuel. Poirier minus 168, Chandler plus 142. I think you're actually getting good value on Poirier there. Very interesting fight. 
And hopefully that one ends up uh, at MSG, because if so, it's going to be a good one. Israel at the Sonia, minus 166. Pejera, plus 140, according to our friends at FanDuel as well. That's, it's hard to, hard to really say who the value side is there, because we have somebody in Israel who's beaten a lot of the top, top guys. He's you know building a massive resume at middleweight. And you got Pejera, who's already beaten Israel. But we're talking MMA now. Beat him in kickboxing. So you might actually be getting some good value on, on Israel here too. I'm going to have to take a closer look at that one. But man, betting against Alex Pajeda sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> just in general. <laughs> so I might just pass on that one altogether. Take a look at some props as it gets a little bit closer. But uh, yeah, that's, that's an excellent, excellent fight. That is a fun one. I'm glad that they've booked both of those fights. Uh, again, well, one is rumored at this point. But I am certainly glad that we're going to see Israel against Pajeda in 2022. That's exciting. Still waiting on the co-main event of UFC 279. I'm on the fence about whether I'm going to go to this one because it seems like... I mean, we've got some Canadians on the card. But uh, you got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 fights booked already based on what's on Wikipedia right now. So they're going to add a co-main event to this. It's going to be 15 fights, but I mean, I'm just curious to see what it is because right now... Okay, so you got Hamza Shemaya versus Diaz. Awesome fight. It's worth buying the card for that. But uh, then you got Jamie Pickett against Dennis Chalulan. You got Johnny Walker against Iwan Kutelaba. That could be an exciting fight. Jake Collier against Chris Barnett. I'm sure they'll put that on the main card, even though it's uh, kind of a strange heavyweight fight. Uh, Alatong Hale, I'm not saying it belongs there. I'm just saying that that seems to be protocol with heavyweight fights lately. Uh, unless they do. Shamil Abdurakhimov against Jalton Almeida on the main card. That's that's a fun one also. Uh, Alatong Haley against Chad and Hellinger. Um... Another Canadian. Nice to see him on the card. Elise Reed against Melissa Martinez. Norma Dumont against Danielle Wolf. Irene Aldana against Macy Chason. Trey Ogden against Daniel Zellhuber. Nicholas Mata against Cameron Van Camp. Louis Cosi against Trevin Giles. Daniel De Silva against Victor Altamarino. And another Canadian, Hakeem Dawadu against Juliana Rosa. But, I mean, outside of Shamaya versus Diaz, which one of those fights really smacks you and says, we, I got to watch this fight. So I, I need to see what's going to happen with the co-main event. I have high hopes that they're going to be able to put something good on it. I thought it was going to end up being Poirier and Chandler, but uh looks like that's going to be in November. So I don't know what they're going to possibly put on. Who knows? Maybe you move one of these upcoming fight night main events and put that on the card. You replace it. I do not know. We had a lot of fights fall out last uh, week that are on this weekend's card now. We will keep an eye on that as well. Trying to think if there's anything else uh, big coming up uh, in the world of mixed martial arts. We had the PFL, of course, last week. We got a Canadian, Olivier Aubon Mercier, fighting for a million dollars. A milli, a milli. Got a nice win over Alex Martinez. 30-27, 30-26, 30-26. He's putting it all together right now. Stevie Ray defeats uh, Anthony Pettis. Another year of Pettis not making the playoffs. Man, he's had a tough go in the PFL. Omari Akhmedov defeats Josh Silvera. I said Silvera might be the dark horse to win the tournament. Omari Ahmedov says, not on my watch. He will be facing Rob Wilkinson, who defeated Delon Monte in the finals in light heavyweight division. We're going to have a new champion coming out of that division, as well as the lightweight division. So those were the other tournament fights that took place on the main card. And uh, PFL 8 takes place this Saturday. Main card, you got a main event between Rory McDonald against Magomed Umalatov. The Umalatov cocktail, as I call him. I don't think that's actually his nickname, but it should be. And then you got the heavyweights. Ante Dalia against... Henan Ferreira, Dennis Goldsov against Mateus Scheffel, 
and uh, Sadibusi against Carlos Leal. So we'll have a new champion at welterweight and at heavyweight because Capelosa's out. So more new champions to be crowned. In fact, looking ahead, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else who has. I mean, Kayla Harrison could become a, a, returning, a repeating champion, but that's it. I think of all the weight classes, she's the only one who's still in play that won last year's season. And I imagine she's the heavy favorite to win this year's season. But let's move on to uh, Vera versus Cruz. It's the main event for this weekend's UFC Fight Night card. Marlon Vera, Cheeto Vera, minus 235. Dominic Cruz, plus 180. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting one because I was on Anakin Florian on Monday. Check that out if you haven't had a chance just yet. And I, and I mentioned that I thought Marlon Vera actually had a, a, an advantage that this fight's going to go five rounds versus three. Dominic Cruz believes it's the other way around, but Vera just seems to get more and more dangerous as fights go on. And uh, I'll probably be throwing some darts on the Vera round four, Vera round five props once uh, those hit Fandu. That's the way I, I. That's how I think this one goes down. I think it's going to be a close fight, but I think that Vera's going to land something in the fourth or fifth that's going to uh, turn some heads. But if Dominic Cruz wins this fight, wow. I mean, he's already had an incredible career already. For my money, the best bantamweight to ever do it. Could be back in the title mix with a win over. David Onama taking on Nate Landwehr. Landwehr was supposed to face Zubaira Tuhugov. Onama steps in on short notice and is a minus 295 favorite subsequently against Landwehr. Onama's a heck of a fighter. I think this guy's got a very bright future. But Nate Landwehr's really good too. Was a champion uh, over in uh, M1. Looked really good in his uh, fight against Ludovic Klein recently who just came off a, a win in his own right. I think two wins, actually, since the uh, Landwehr fight. Ludovic Klein fight was uh, back in October of 2021. So Landwehr now taking on uh, Onama. Onama, a pretty heavy favorite. I'm not sh- I probably would have to stay away from that one, to be honest. I think you could take the uh, fight doesn't go to the decision at minus 220 and parlay that with some things, but uh, I don't really have a, a side on this one. Azamat Mirzakhanov against Devin Clark. Mirzakhanov, a minus 170 favorite. Clark, plus 132. I actually like the Clark side in this situation. But uh, I have to do a little bit more of a dive into it. I, I remember Mirzakhanov in his last fight. looked like he was about to lose. You know, he looked like he was going to lose on the cards to, to Fon and Chuki, if I recall correctly, but then ended up getting a finish in the third round out of nowhere. Devin Clark, I think, has looked pretty good in recent fights, although he... Uh, Lost to... Did he lose to William Knight? I think he... Did he beat William Knight in his last fight? I think he beat De- William Knight in his last... Yeah, he got a win over William Knight in his last fight. So that was a good win for uh, for Devin Clark. Still only 32 years old, which is surprising because it seems like he's been around for a long time. Was coming off back-to-back losses to uh, Anthony Smith and Iwan Kutelaba. But uh, his last four wins over William Knight and Alonzo Menafield were his uh, two most recent wins. So good wins there. Good quality wins. That should be an interesting one. Cynthia Calvillo, minus 180. Nina Nunes plus 140. I'm going to take the Nina Nunes side here. I, I haven't liked what I've seen from Calvillo in recent fights. And uh, I've always thought Nina Nunes was very underrated as a fighter. So I, I'll be taking that side in this particular fight. That probably will be. Yasmin Jaregui against Yasmin Lucindo. Couldn't tell you anything about either of these fighters just yet, but I will do my research uh, a little bit later on in the week on them. Don't know much about uh, either fighter. Man, Gerald Mearshart doesn't like taking easy fights, does he? Taking on Bruno Silva. Bruno Silva minus 295, Mearshart plus 220. That's a tall order for Gerald Mearshart. That's a tough, tough matchup. But that's what he likes. That's where he tends to excel. I always like looking at the Mearshart by submission prop, but the value isn't even there. It's plus, uh, you know, it looks like it's going to be the plus 500 range. If it gets to like plus 700 or something, then now we're talking. But uh, 
Bruno Silva, that's going to be a tough, tough ask for Gerald Mearshart. But he, hey, he's risen to the occasion before. Everybody thought Mahmoud Muradov was going to take his head off. Muradov was a minus 525 favorite at close. And Gerald Mearshart got that got it done there. So never doubt Gerald Mearshart. Martin, Martin Boudet is minus 225. Lukasz Brzezewski, plus 172. Again, I kind of have to go back. I wasn't super impressed with Boudet on Contender Series, but I have to go back and... Uh, I think Brzezewski is the guy who... No, he ended up getting a... He beat, he beat Lorenzo Hood. I wasn't blown away by him either, to be honest. So it might just be a wait-and-see, watch-and-see type fight. Gabriel Benitez, minus 350. Charlie Ontiveros, plus 255. Benitez is probably safe for parlays here, but... Uh, Again, another guy who I haven't been bowled over by much lately. Ode Osborne against Tyson Nam. Fun, fun flyweight fight. I'm surprised Ode Osborne's this big of a favorite, to be honest, but uh, probably a pass for me. Let's go to Canada. Lupita Godinez, minus 350, Mexican-Canadian. Represents both flags against Angela Hill. Godinez has been uh, bet up all the way to minus 350. Interested to see what kind of props come out on this one because... Uh, if you can get Godinez by decision at around even money, that might be worth looking. If you can get a good inside the distance line on Godinez, she's pretty relentless. So uh, I think you might be able to... That, that might be where you can extract some value. But uh, I don't know. You might just want to parlay her with something else if you like her. And Angela Hill's not an easy out either. I mean, this is a, probably the toughest matchup that Godinez has faced yet. And for her to be this big of a favorite, I think speaks volumes about her upside in this division. Josh Quinlan versus Jason Witt. I'm not sure if this fight is official just yet, but it got moved from last week. I know Quinlan's having some issues with uh, some adverse testing uh, results that may preclude him from appearing on this card. So I don't know what's happening there, but uh, same odds as last week, minus 245 Quinlan. Witt plus 186. And uh, the under in that fight is looking pretty tempting. Yusuf Zalal, minus 125. Damon Blackshear, minus 102. Blackshear, a CFFC champion uh, at Bantamweight. Great fighter. This is going to be an interesting debut. Yusuf Zalal, though, I, I think is a really, really underrated fighter who I don't believe we've seen much of recently. I remember he fought in Houston. I think he's fought once since then. Wow, he's fought five times since then. I'm way off on that. But uh, two, he's uh, four and three in his last seven, three and three in the UFC. But the loss is coming to Sean Woodson, who I think is a solid fighter, split decision. Sung Woo Choi, another solid fighter who uh, is unfortunately coming off a loss. And uh, Ilya Tapuria, so uh, no no shame in those losses. I think he's going to try to put some respect back on his name because he uh, had some momentum early on in his uh, UFC career for a while. And uh, Ariane Lipsky, minus 200. Priscilla Cachuera, plus 154, gets moved from last week's card. Might want to look at Cachuera. It seemed like Lipsky was really feeling ill effects of COVID-19. And I thought that just to begin with, Cachuera had some solid value in this situation, so that might end up being a, a recommended play as well. We will see. I haven't recorded those yet. Those will be recorded, I believe, on Thursday. So keep uh, an eye out for those on uh, the TSN Edge account. Now, before we move on to our interviews, I want to talk a little bit about the Contender Series from last night because it was a pretty interesting instance, let's say. Bo Nickel, of course, the biggest name on the Contender Series this season. Enters as a 25 to 1 favorite, as high as a 40 to 1 favorite in some spots, in his bout against Zachary Borrego. And it just demolishes him. I mean, we're talking about just over a minute. Doesn't absorb a single strike. It's just one way traffic. And I think that was probably the expectation, of course, given the, uh, the line for this bout. So 
we see how it goes and you know he ends up getting a pretty straightforward and easy win over Borrego and everybody expects that he's gonna get a contract myself in included of course Dana White comes out at the end of the show talks to Lorizanko and is asked about the other uh, contracts yeah of course who he's awarding them to and he mentions two of the fighters that he's giving a contract to then it comes down to Bo Nickel and he says uh, you know, I want to see him uh, fight again on the Contender Series. Only has two fights, two professional fights. Let's have him fight later on in the season. You know, the season's still going. We've got eight more weeks here. We'll have him fight again. Now, I don't have a problem with that. But I feel like the delivery left something to be desired. And I also think that we're missing some details here that would be pretty in important in terms of promoting Bo Nickel. In terms of Letting people know that, hey, this guy can't just go sign with Bellator or one championship or the PF. Unfortunately, the Nevada State Athletic Commission no longer discloses contracts, no longer, or salaries, rather, for fights. Because my guess is, they've got Bo Nickel locked up. He's probably on a 50-50 and 50 type deal for the Contender Series, if I had to guess. So basically, he's going to be almost guaranteed $200,000. It depends on, of course, he has to beat his next opponent, but he's Bo Nickel. He's one of the, the most decorated amateur wrestlers in the world right now, like, you know, that, that walks the earth right now, was the athlete of the year in his conference, not just in wrestling, but in, they talked about this on Contender Series, but in all of sports. And the guy's just an unbelievable specimen. And it's clear that he's going to be in the U.S. But to kind of make it seem like, well, I got to see more of this guy, I'm not sold yet. Why not just say, okay, you're in, buddy. But we want you to fight again on Contender Series. You know, you don't have enough experience just yet. You're welcome to the team. You're on the UFC roster. But while you're going to be in the UFC sometime soon, let's have you fight one more time at the Contender Series. You're going to face somebody that uh, is not just not quite UFC level yet. But we're going to see how you do. But either way, you're in. All good. Why not just say that? Like, why are we doing? Why are we putting on this dog and pony show that? You know, Bo Nickel, oh, it's a developmental deal. He's going to get one more fight. I mean, let's let's promote this guy. We're talking about somebody here who was a massive favorite for a reason. These people know who he is. And if you don't know who he is, they ought to tell you who he is. Because this is a guy who has sky-high upside in this sport. Could, end, could be one of the all-time greats. It's, it's fair to say at this point in time, he could end up being one of the all-time greats in the sport. 185 pounds, has an incredible wrestling pedigree in a division that, let's face it, is mostly great strikers. Not to mention that Bo Nickel striking has looked great in his fights. So, why do we have to put on this charade that, yeah, we need to see him one more time, you know? If the Contender Series, you know, like Dana White's been saying, is like, it's all about tonight. It's all about what you do on, on the night. Because we've seen a lot of guys come in. The Brandon Lochnanes of the world. Austin Vanderford's of the world who fights this weekend. They come in and they, they win. But the performance isn't quite electrifying. It's not something that you were like, wow, I'm blown away by this guy. We know the talent's there. And it's also, another thing about it is like the level of competition is important. Because if you look at the first fight of the night, the, the women's, I believe it was flyweight fight, that's a competitive fight. It's not, not easy to get a finish in that division, period. And she was looking forward to the very end of that fight. Wojcik, I believe, was, was her name. So the, the, person, the competitor that you're going to be facing, that's an important part of things. It's important to determine just how good of a fighter you are. 
Because if you're, like, look at the flyweight fight. that I believe it was the second fight of the night. Very competitive fight. The guy got a contract because he was put on an entertaining fight. Didn't get the finish, but, you know, like it was a... He came back from some adversity. Good story there. Bo Nickel ran through with this guy like a buzzsaw. It wasn't, a clo- it wasn't close. For even a second of that fight, it wasn't close. So, A, you're doing him a disservice by putting him up against a guy who's only 3-0. That's be- beaten guys with a sub-500 record for the most part. Beating unestablished guys on the regional scene. You're putting him in a, s- a position to succeed. You know he's going to succeed. The odds are... The, the, the winning probability is like 97%. The implied winning probability. 97%. So you know that at the end of the night, this guy's going to win. You gotta have a game plan here. I mean, Dana White says he doesn't know anything about these guys before they fight. I'm sure people have told him that there's this guy named Bo Nickel that's gonna be on the Contender Series. Like, is he ignoring that? And are the matchmakers not after the fact being like, yeah, this guy's ready, he can win. I just think that the way that they did it, it took credibility away from Bo, it took credibility away from the show and the, the format. I just think you can phrase it differently. That's all it is. You have the exact same result as we had yesterday in terms of Bo fighting one more time in the Contender Series. But why not just phrase it as saying, Bo, we like what we see. You were a massive favorite going into this fight. For a reason, because you're good. They gave the guy a layup. Let's be honest. No disrespect to his opponent. There's a minus 3,000 favorite, right? Like, you're talking about basically a slam dunk. I think he's the biggest favorite in UFC history. Like, I don't think we've seen... I mean, it's not in the UFC. It's Dana White Contender Series. Definitely the biggest favorite in Dana White Contender Series history. Massive favorite. So, I just don't understand why they don't say, Okay, you're in. We know how good you are. You're one of the best prospects in the world today. But before you have your first UFC fight, let's do one more Contender Series fight and have you fight another guy that's not quite at the... You know, that's not on the UFC roster just yet. Let's, let's ease you into this process. See, that's the way to do it anyways. You don't want to throw these guys into the deep end right away, although I, I don't have a lot of doubt that Bo Nickel would be able to swim with just about anybody in this division, but that's my only point. It's like, it's a very low upside proposition to have him face another guy in Contender Series. Like, what's going to prove what we already know? I understand I'm getting the reps, so that's all. That, that's the only thing I would change. It's just the delivery. But either way, Bo Nickel, I mean, this guy looks like he's going to run through. I had one guy who covers the sports say he looks like he's ready to face Israel. Now, let's, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit. But I think if you put him in there against any unranked middleweight, for the most part, he's the favorite. If you're looking at, strictly at the betting lines. And I think he'd be, even be as high of a minus 800, minus 900 favorite against some of the current middleweights in the UFC. Because of his pedigree. So let's... You know, let's embrace Bo Nickel. Let's promote Bo Nickel. Let's talk about this guy like he's the future of the sport instead of being like, you know, instead of slow rolling it. That's all. That's all I would do differently. But it was a great show. Wasn't quite as good as last week, but then again, very, very few episodes of the Contender Series are. So that's not an indictment of the show or anything along those lines. Good talent on the show. I thought the, the, those that won the contract deserved to win the contract. I mean, Pogues, based on the circumstances, like I kind of understand, but that was, for heavyweights, not the most exciting fight. But nice to see him get an opportunity. I, I, I can rationalize why they gave him a contract. They say, listen, took the fight on short notice, looked good in the first round, let's give him a full camp, see what he can do at his natural weight class. I get all that. That makes sense to me. But why not have him fight later in the season on the Contender Series? He's come in twice. He's won both fights, but they're both decisions. They're both... You're not bringing the excitement level that's requisite of getting a contract in the Contender Series. Like, if you ask me, 
You give Bo Nickel the contract, and you tell Pogues come back later in the season. We want, we want, we like you. Fight at two hundred five. We'll give you seven weeks to prepare. That's just my opinion on the matter. So when we get to some uh, interviews, we got some interviews this week that we're going to get to here on the TSN MMA show, and I'm excited to bring them to you. We're going to start off with uh, Dominic Cruz, who of course is headlining this weekend's card. Gerald Mearshart, Nina Nunez, should be a lot of fun. Also, Aaron Jeffrey joining us on the show. Taking on Austin Vanderford at uh, Bellator. Rory McDonald fighting in the PFL this week. Lots of interviews to get to. So why don't we get to them right now here on the TSN MMA show. Thank you for tuning in. Here they are. We'll start with Dominic Cruz. Today is the 13-year anniversary of Dominic Cruz earning his first ever bantamweight title shot after beating Joseph Benavidez. How, far, how long ago did that seem to you, Dominic? Eons ago. And actually, my first uh, title fight was against Brian Bowles. Yeah, you earned the title fight by beating Joseph Benavidez on this day 13 years ago. Uh, really, that was one of my favorite WEC fights as well. Uh, you guys were basically neck and neck. You were one. He was kind of number two in the bantamweight division for some time. Uh, what did that win, win mean to you? Do you remember it when it happened? Yeah, I remember. And it was very awesome because he was um, a teammate of one of my rivals, Uriah Faber at the time. And um, I just, I felt like after I had lost to Faber, I kept having to face a bunch of teammates of his. I mean, I pretty much faced every single one of his teammates before I got another shot at him. So that was really important for me to get that win. And obviously to win the title and beat a guy like Joseph. We've had a lot of wars together, me and him. We've done a lot of rounds and I have a lot of respect for him. So to be able to beat him was big. So you say he was a, I, I'm trying to clarify this. You said at the time he was a, a partner of uh, your rival or uh, your eye favor. So I'm trying to figure out, was that your rival at the time? Or are you still considered to have a bit of a rivalry with Team Alpha Male? Is that rivalry ever going to end? No, I don't have a rivalry with them. I mean, it's, that, that chapter closed. I signed a poster, me and Faber sat down, we're cool. That whole squad, I have a lot of respect for them. They turned me into what I am. They're a big part of why I'm still relevant today. They've all prepared me in all those fights. I'm just saying that back then, I had I was looking for a title shot, and Faber was getting a uh, was in that spot then, and this was one of those um, one of his teammates, and I had faced a ton of his teammates, so that just kept it going. It seemed like I kept facing. Team Alpha Male guys, and that's what I mean. Like they really helped shape me into where I'm at today. They gave me so many tough fights. Now you talk about where you're at today. I've heard a couple of interviews with you uh, this week with some of my colleagues. You, it seems like you have a really different mindset right now about controlling what you can control. Now, if you were to have a conversation with the Dominic Cruz that was the WEC and, and bantamweight champion from many years ago, would you have liked that guy? Like, would you have been able to be friends with that version of Dominic Cruz? That's a great question. Thank you for a refreshingly great question. Um, would I have liked that guy? I I still don't like that guy, I don't think. But that guy's still there. <laughs> but he only gets to come out at certain times. I think the difference now is I can choose when I want to let him out. When as before, it was kind of my safety mechanism everywhere I went that I felt threatened. In, in any mindset of survival, I turned into... You know, the pretty. I could be a pretty dark person when I need to be, but we all have a dark side. Uh, it's still there. People don't really change. 
uh, they just I just notice when that person wants to come out and if that person if it, if it works to be that person then I'll be it but if it doesn't then I don't need to and I'm grateful that I have different tools to be able to choose who I need to be to make it work in every situation kind of like a chameleon it's not that you're not confident now but that version of Dominic Cruz was probably the most outwardly confident fighter maybe ever I mean if anybody would have said anything bad about your game back then, you would have had an answer for them. Oh, I still have answers. <laughs> but I also admit a lot of questions. So I think that the difference now is uh, when I would give people the answer before, now I would ask them a, a question to, to see if they really believe that that's true, whatever they think. And how do you think this version of Dominic Cruz would do in the cage against that old version of Dominic Cruz from many years ago? The game has evolved so much. Do you think you're just leaps and bounds better than that version of Dominic Cruz? But also the rest of the MMA world has caught up to where that level of Dominic Cruz was. That's a good way to put it. Uh, they, the, the game has evolved so much. And I, was a, I, liked, I know for a fact that I was a huge instrument in what created the, the level of this bantamweight division, this... I was one of the first ones to be switching stance consistently in order to hide takedowns and to dodge takedowns and to use my head movement in different ways with my hands down because it's a different sport. So a lot of rules had been said to be fact back then. But with a brand new sport, how could any of it be set as what's right and wrong? It was endless possibilities at that time. So I definitely have... Uh, a lot of new things in my game that I've had to tighten up to adapt to this day of mixed martial arts. I can't fight the same way I did then. Uh, I can fight similarly because there's still an essence in me that will always be what I am. But I have, I've had to tighten a lot of things up in order to still be relevant right now uh, with the level of competition that's that, that the world of mixed martial arts is in. And so... Um, I think that I would definitely, me, me versus me in the past would be a tough fight. I, I don't know who I would take. It, it would be very tough. Well, back then you were light years ahead of everybody in terms of footwork, in terms of boxing. Now, like we just discussed, the game has really evolved. But is there a part of your game right now where you feel like you're a step ahead of the rest of the competition if you look at the field in bantamweight? Uh, I think the only thing that I could say that I'm a step ahead of a lot, I don't know about every ounce of competition but it's just my mindset on is on i've gotten to face retirement i think a lot of fighters have not a lot of active fighters have not felt the feeling of retirement i've had that feeling because of all the injuries so i know what i am when this when this thing is gone when fighting's over and it's all said and done and i can't compete anymore i'll i know i love my life i love who i am i'm happy without it and I think that that's something that, as you see fighters retire and come back, retire and come back, I think that that's a challenge for a lot of the athletes in general, not just fighters, just athletes. When we lose that, that limelight or the competitive nature, I think you see a lot of athletes get lost. I'm not lost in that. I, I can embrace uh, that, but I, it also makes me extra grateful that I can still do it now, but I don't need it. And uh, if I had an edge, I would say it's the fact that I don't need this, I choose it. Now, about a month ago, you did a scoring class with, uh, with one of the commissions, you and your fellow broadcasters. What did you learn the most from that course? Is there anything about the scoring criteria that perhaps you didn't know 
going into that that you now know? Uh, what I learned is that it's just as confusing as it's always been. And um, I've learned that uh, I learned I learned a little bit about the refs and how they how they how they, the how heavy their burden is because there's there's people that are keeping track of statistics that we are to believe that they know what a takedown is. We are to believe that they know um, what lands and what doesn't land. But a lot of them might not have the mixed martial arts knowledge like somebody like Daniel Cormier or an ex-fighter who's been in there. Um, they might have watched fights their whole life, but that doesn't mean that they fought. So I think that when we get ex-fighters that have been at the highest level in those positions, things can really start to shift. But right now, um, you get what you get, and that's it. When you say statistics, though, do you mean the judges keeping kind of a mental tally of what's going on, or do you mean the actual statistics? Because I, I would argue that statistics in MMA don't really matter after the fact. Yeah, they, they, that's the point. How can you judge a fight if statistics can't matter because nobody knows if, if what they're seeing is what they're seeing? So you can have the, the greatest judges in the world. You can have the greatest uh, mechanisms in the world keeping track of stats. But if the person that's pushing the buttons keeping track of the stats doesn't know what something is because they haven't been in that position, then they don't know what they're pushing either. Uh, no matter how great the, the system is, you need people that have been at the highest level in the sport in those positions for this to really clear up uh, and be, you know, at the highest level. Um, but the sport's brand new, so it's going to take time for it to get to that. It's only been around, you know, 20 years, if that. And it's the fastest growing sport in the world. Um, as for judges, the judges have a very tough job. The referees have a very tough job. They have to make lightning quick decisions in a short period of time. And um, it's not easy. So I have no... I have no negative words to say about them except they have a tough job and hopefully we just get more mixed martial artists that have completed their careers into those jobs soon. And I think the biggest thing that I would say is that the commissions, what would really support mixed martial arts athletes is the commissions are here. They say they're here to keep the fighters safe, but every single state has a different set of rules and every single state has a different commission. And none of them talk to each other. They're all separate with different sets of rules. So if you're here to stand for the fighters, then I think the best thing that every commission could do is work together and communicate with one another and follow one set of united rules and stop changing them in every single state to try to seem right. Uh, we got a lot of commissions that are trying to be right instead of trying to be with. And if you're right, then you're on an island all by yourself. And if you're with, then we can all work together. I would love to see mixed martial arts athletes be safe because of commissions that are working together instead of trying to be right over the other one. Well, I, I don't think we're going to see any former fighters at high levels become judges because it, it sucks. The job sucks. You barely get paid any money. You are leaving yourself open to criticism all the time. I, I just don't see it as being something that an ex-fighter would want to do. Every weekend, go out, get paid minimal <laughs> amounts of money to judge mixed martial arts and then be you know, put under a microscope all the time. I hate to tell you, but that that's not a very uh, possibility mindset, my friend. You might want to shift that. Well, I mean, I agree with that, but I, th I don't think that it's going to shift if it's, there's nothing in it for the fighters. I mean, I think that every judge right now 
is in it because they love the sport. I don't think they're in it for the money or the fame or the notoriety. I think they're in it because they have a passion for MMA, but I just don't think that we're going to see a lot of really high-level fighters. We've seen guys like Frank Trigg do it, but a lot of guys, I don't think that it's that appealing to them personally. You could be right. You could be wrong. I hope I am wrong, and I hope that uh, we do end up seeing uh, some fighters from the highest level do transition over to the legislative side of things. You never know, but what it comes down to is the commission being open to more possibilities, and it, it comes down to the commissions. The commissions hires the judges. The commission hires the refs. So when the commissions work together, I think that the chances of that become higher. Well, I do hope that is the case. Dominic, thank you for this. It's yourself, Cheeto Vera, this weekend. Five-round fight in your backyard, San Diego, one block from where you train. Appreciate your time, and I look forward to watching the fight this Saturday. Thanks. I look forward to it, too. I'll be there. I'm pleased to be joined now by Nina and Reagan Nunez. It's a pleasure to have you as always, Nina. Big week for you and your family for the last three weeks. You had uh, Amanda, of course, reclaiming the title in Dallas two weeks ago. Ultimate Fighter wrapping up last weekend. And now you're back in the cage against Cynthia Calvillo this weekend. Um, what's yes. it been like? Has it been hectic? Um, I mean, it, it was a little bit hectic because we had everything planned out based on that I was going to fight Cynthia the first time and I didn't get sick. Uh, so we had to move some things around. It, you know, of course, it would have been easier if I were to finish that fight and then focus fully on Amanda's and then after that be done. Um, but it didn't work out like that. Things happened and um, took me a week to recover from when I was sick. And then I was still coming in and out of Amanda's gym to finish off her camp and then flew to Dallas. Uh, we got that done. And then I came back for a week, trained hard for a week. And, and then we came here on Saturday and I'm feeling amazing. Well, you say things happen. It seems like more often than not, during fight week, something happens to you. It seems like you've, you've been cursed over the years. So walk me through all of the different things that have happened to you during fight week. And does this worry you every single time you, you go into a fight, the things that you can't control? You know what? No. And then coming into this fight, you know, it was the least I was worried because I, I didn't really cut weight. You know, I went up a weight class. I was feeling healthy. So I knew my kidneys wouldn't affect me, uh, which was an issue in the past. Um... But, you know, I, I was I got a stomach virus. Um, I had it the day before weigh-ins, but it seemed like it was, you know, getting better. And I was thinking once I rehydrated and all that, um, it wouldn't be as bad. It actually got worse once I started putting everything back in my system. Um, you know, I tried to go. I went to the hospital, see what I could do, maybe take an IV, some medication. Uh, but it was just so violent how it hit me that, like, just the sensitivity of being touched in the stomach or anywhere was just too much. So. Uh, my team and I decided that we would just push the fight, you know. Um, I was hoping they would just keep the same fight, just move it a couple weeks. Um, they said they had an opening in San Diego, and I thought that was perfect. Well, it's good to see that it worked out that way. And I guess when you fought Tatiana Suarez, you had strep throat. It seems like a, a couple times you've been hit with illnesses during fight week. Yeah, um, I think mainly it, what it was happening at 115 was because I think my immune system was dropping as I was losing weight rapidly. Um, at 125, I don't feel that I do just think this was just a freak situation to be like here you go Nina one more time um but you know I'm still very positive I feel amazing nothing's affecting me now and we'll be good to go on Saturday was 115 a tough weight cut for you or is it just that 125 is a lot easier no 115 was really tough actually I had to do like a really strict diet for about eight weeks like I could not cheat at all and then I would end up be cutting around eight to 10 pounds of water, you know, the night before, which when I was already very small and sucked out. So um, I kind of just got caught up in the weight class, 
you know, in the rankings, uh, who was in it. And I didn't really think of 25 again, although I was originally a 25er. Um, but once I decided to go to 25 and I just feel so much healthier and happier that, you know, I'm fighting for myself and I'm, and I'm counting down the days to the fight, not the days to the weigh-in. And I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like your skill set actually matches up more favorably against the, those that are in the rankings in this division versus the ones in strawweight. Do you agree? Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like with strawweight, I never knew if I was going to be able to perform. It was always a 50-50 shot. You know, I didn't know if my body was going to work. I didn't feel the strength that I did three weeks before I started losing weight to get to 15. Um, but at, at 125, you know, there's a lot of girls that um, – you know, they match up better with my style, with my strength. And, you know, I just, I'm excited for to be in the new weight class, new names, new faces. So, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a fun weight class with a lot of different moving parts right now. Um, and kind of a wide open spot, I guess, at the top, right? There's not really an established fighter that's going to be facing Valentina Shevchenko next. It's, it's rare that you see that in the division right now in the UFC, but I guess that speaks to her dominance. And you can relate with Amanda. It seemed like it was a, you know tough to find her challengers for a long time. Yeah, um, but I do feel like there are girls now. I mean, 125 was in a naked weight class for a while because uh, I think they did the same thing I did. There was no 125, so they focused on being a 35 or a 15er, and everyone thinks, oh, it's just 10 pounds, you know, what's the big deal? But you focus so much on that weight class that you're going to that you forget about where you can really be your best at. Uh, so people are going down to 115, they get stuck there. To get back to 125, you know, I got to put on muscle, and am I going to be big enough? And then you have the 35ers. If I cut weight to 15, am I going to be strong enough? Am I going to lose my strength? So I see the struggle why the weight class was empty for a little bit. Um, but there are girls now that are natural 125ers that are starting to fill it out. And I feel like Tyla was a really good matchup for Valentina. I, I, I thought she was winning the fight um, until the headbutt. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an open weight class, but there are girls now that are being very competitive in that weight class. And she's opted to not have surgery, so she could be back sooner rather than later. I guess we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Um, yeah. In your last fight against uh, Mackenzie Dern, you'd mentioned after the fact that in the very first exchange, you could tell that you weren't in it for that fight. What exactly happened yeah. to you mentally during that exchange that kind of told you that maybe, A, you had come back a little bit too soon, or B, it just wasn't going to be your night? It was, I knew the whole week. I knew when I took the fight. Like, it was something that I was just sitting at home. I was bored. Amanda was already fighting. Um, I was already out. I, I had the baby. And I was just sitting at home, and I felt like I was losing my identity. Um, I felt like I was just, I changed to a stay-at-home mom, and that my career was like, you know, it's never going to come back. It's never going to come back. So I knew if I took the fight, um, it would force me to go to the gym. It would force me to be in shape. I would have to be ready. Uh, but then I had issues with kidney stones and all this stuff that, like, was trying to tell me to stop. I had multiple infections after the birth. It's just a lot of things that were signs. It was too soon. It's just I just needed to do it. But when I got in there and, and after the first exchange, I didn't feel that feeling like I wanted to be in a fight. And I was just like, you know, whatever. I never felt that before. Um, so I wasn't like upset with myself or anything. I didn't beat myself. I was, you know, I went back in the locker room. I saw my daughter and I was just like, oh, that was dumb. Let's go on to the next. I never didn't do anything to me. You know, are you glad that you did it though for the learning experience of it all? It seems like yeah. you took something away from that. Yeah. Cause it was, you know, it's kind of like you laugh it off and you would, you never know what you would have gotten into if you didn't do that. I probably wouldn't have gone up to 25 if I didn't, you know? So you never know. Like I, I'm not. I never beat myself up over. Of course, losing socks. So a week later, I was like, that was stupid. 
but that's it. You got to move on. You can't just dwell on things like that. It doesn't make sense, too. And like you just said, I think it was probably the push that you needed to get you to 125 pounds. You, you look at the rankings, you're in there, you, you don't want to give that up and start kind of from fresh. But when you have that kind of an experience, it kind of tells you the message that you need to receive at that time. Exactly. That's exactly what I felt like. So I never beat myself out. I got home. I was like, Amanda, I was like, you know what? First of all, oh, do I still want to fight? And they're like, yeah, I do still want to fight, but I want to do it when I feel good and how I perform the way I know I can, how, how I feel great in the gym. And that's when I'm a little bit heavier. So it was, we talked about it and that was a decision. Um, I was supposed to fight Amanda Lemos after two weeks after Amanda was going to fight Juliana the first time in December, but I had kidney issues again. And that's why I was like, you know what? That's it. 125 it is. And I, and, and that was it. That was the decision. How much time did you get to celebrate Amanda's victory two weeks ago before you had to jump right back into this particular fight to, to kind of change your mentality? We, didn't, we haven't celebrated at all. You know, I think there was a lot. It was, it was a very heavy pressure going into that fight, you know, not just because of Amanda. Everyone expects this Amanda that everyone knows she is. But, you know, everything changed for that fight. Uh, we opened a new gym, new training partners, new coaches. You know, the baby, me in a camp at the same time. So, like, I think the emotional pressure on that was more of, like, a relief. We just kind of want to chill for a second rather than celebrate. Um, and once that chill, the adrenaline of that chill runs off, then we're going to go celebrate, which is right in time for me to finish my fight win and do it together. Well, you're in the corner with Roger for uh, Amanda's fight. When did, you, when did it click with you that, you know, she's got this? Was there a moment in time where that happened? For sure. First round, within uh, two minutes of the first round, the first exchange, the first movement, um, I mean, before the fight, I knew Amanda was in a different mindset going into it. Uh, as soon as I saw her start moving the way I know Amanda moves, I, I knew she was going to win the fight. We just had to stay smart. And the Ultimate Fighter wrapped up. Uh, the lone Team Nunes member, uh, Brogan Walker, uh, lost her fight. You know, watching that, I know what ah. Brogan's capable of. And it just seemed to me like she had the wrong game plan going into that fight. I, I know that it wasn't your team that was coaching her for this particular fight. But do you agree with that? I, I honestly thought that if she, if she led with her jab and, and just kept Juliana at distance, she could have won that fight fairly easily. I don't feel like that was the Brogan that, ever, that we knew, that we met, that we trained for over a month. Um, you know, I feel like she jumped off for Gabriel. It could have been the adrenaline, the pressure of what that was, you know, the fight for the contract. I don't know if she had a new team. I don't know. You know, we haven't talked to her about it yet. We're going to let it set in, but we're going to talk to her soon. Um, but I know Brogan's better than that. I know Brogan could have won that, won that fight, but I also can relate to her. I've been in the same situation, so I can't sit there and say, oh, you know, how could you? Because I've... I know I'm a different fighter sometimes, and sometimes I just don't put it together in the cage. Uh, so I'm going to speak to her, see what you know what it is, if it's something you can adjust and fix, and take it from there. That was a frustrating fight to watch. Just like just as someone who watched the whole season, and I'm sure, of course, from your perspective, yeah. it was probably frustrating for you, given that you spent all that time with her. But yeah, so I, I, I can probably I, mean, I, I can understand how you felt. It wasn't just like that. We coached with her. I, I trained with her. Like I was like in her camp you know for the for the ultimate fighter so i know what she's capable of and it just you know for some reason it was juliana's fight that night she needed the contract uh brogan's not far away from getting a ufc contract so it was just a little bump in the road for her i think uh she gets her things together refocuses i think you'll see her in the ufc shortly and more often than not, the runner-up does end up in the UFC uh, right away. We've seen that recently. So hopefully that is the case for Broken. Um, appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Nina, and best of luck on Saturday. Thank you.
Thank you. Well, nobody can accuse Gerald Mearshart of turning down a tough fight. You got Hamza Shemaev, you got Mahmoud Muradov, and now Bruno Silva. It seems like when they need somebody to face these tough guys, you're their first call. Yeah, it works out that way, which is funny because uh, I had made the Sean O'Malley comment and I had some people give me grief about that. And it was, you know, a joke and kind of tongue-in-cheek. But here we are again, me saying yes to another guy that uh, apparently multiple people said no to. Do you follow these guys' careers? Like, when they give you a name, it seems like you are good to accept it, you know. But do you know a lot about Bruno Silva when that name is brought to your attention? Uh, I had seen him fight. I was familiar with the name. Obviously, he had the fight with uh, Perea, and, you know, uh, Perea had a lot of hype coming in along with him into the UFC. Uh, but, you know, I looked a little bit closer after that, and it's not like I don't follow MMA super close you know i try to follow my weight class as close as i can but uh, i had heard his name and you know i knew he was tough yeah now pajera is getting a title shot uh one win removed from that win against bruno silva pretty incredible i I looked it up today it was only 11 months ago that he had his last kickboxing fight against uh artem vahidov one of the great uh i guess two fights in kickboxing history is their two fights together but like he's, he's fighting for the championship already it's pretty remarkable yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm surprised uh, they must have already had him on some kind of testing thing, too, because I know there's some rule about, like, getting you in the USADA pool. But, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of guys uh, in different martial arts like to stay active, and good for him. Have you met that guy before, Alex Pereira? No, no, I, I've never met him. We both have trained at Fusion XL before, but I've never been there at the same time that he's been there. Like, very rarely will I get, like, an energy off of somebody where you're standing next to them and you feel, like, something exuding from them. He's one of those guys where, like, I stand next to this guy and he's got, like, this real, like, energy about him. Like, a very stoic energy that's kind of scary. Yeah, I could see that. He's a a physically big guy. He's long and lanky. And, uh, I mean, you know, his nickname is, like, Stone Hands or whatever it is for a reason. His nickname is Poetan, which I think is like a, a native Brazilian uh, reference. I thought, yeah, I thought, well, I could be hearing that wrong, but I thought the meaning behind that was like it meant hands of stone or something to that effect. Now, it seems it seems like that would be a fitting name. I mean, this guy's got like baseball bats for arms and legs, like just walks around with clubs. It's like a, he's a pretty scary guy. But uh, let's move on to, the, to you and the, the scary guy you're facing this weekend, Bruno Silva. Um, you've moved over to Team Killcliffe uh, for this particular camp. A lot of really good 185ers there. Uh, tell me about some of the guys you trained with over in, uh, in Deerfield Beach. Oh, man, yeah. A lot of, lot of big bodies, a lot of good bodies. Um, I'm sure I'll forget some names, but uh, I got to train a lot with uh, Ong... Uh, Ang Lan Sang, and I got to train a lot with uh, another guy, Mark Berry, also I've trained with before, but he was there, and I got good rounds in with him. Um, you know, I forget their last names. There's a guy, Dylan, the guy, Fozzie, uh, Emilio Sordi, who had won the PFL championship before at 205, uh, Gregory Rodriguez, another really good 185er in the UFC. Uh, I got good work in with Phil Hawes. Uh, Impa Kasagani is there. I got to go a little bit with Logan Storley, like a lot of big name guys. And, you know, it's not just that they have a name attached to them to say like, oh, it's cool. You know, you train with somebody who has some notoriety, but they're they're all very skilled. Everybody was very professional. Um, 
everybody was very competitive and like was good about giving you work with understanding that the goal is to make the money in the fight. You know what I mean? There was no egos. Nobody was trying to win any like gym fights. So it was, it was a great atmosphere, great training, you know, couldn't have asked for a better place to get ready for a fight. Well, you mentioned Gregory Rodriguez. To me, he's probably the best guy you could find that could emulate Bruno Silva. They're very, very similar fighters. Yeah, no, I got, uh, I got some good, uh, a lot of good kickboxing rounds in with him. Um, you know, I tried to get with him as much as I could while he was in, but yeah, he was a, he was a great partner, great resource to have super, super nice guy, really, really nice guy. So, you know, like I said, a lot of, a lot of good looks, a lot of guys that are, uh, you know, you can get pretty much whatever look you need there. So he was one of them for sure. That definitely had a similar look to, uh, Bruno. So who's cornering you for this particular fight? Uh, so I'll have Jason Strout in my corner, and he's a guy we both have uh, roots, both from Wisconsin. Um, he also trained with Duke Rufus for a very long time, so we kind of come from the same system, and he's been at uh, Kill Cliff for a while now. Um, and I'll have Bilal Muhammad in my corner because, you know, I've known him and been training with him for a long, long time. And uh, I might even have my manager, Brian Butler, in my corner. We'll see if we get the paperwork done in time, but that was kind of a late, last-minute addition. I saw Butler on the corner last weekend. I'm trying to remember who it was. I just remember, remember. I think was it Jamal Hill. I think he was in Jamal Hill's corner, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Yeah, main event, Jamal Hill. So hopefully he brings some of that, uh, some of that good juju with him for my fight. Absolutely. Well, it's nice to see that the uh, Rufus Sports, I guess, uh, family tree, so to speak, is still supporting one another. Jared Gordon, of course, also trained at Rufus Sport. He's uh, at Team Killcliffe now as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, that's the thing, you know, I had a lot of connections here, like, uh, I had met Jason before, we trained at the same place, um, you know, Brendan Allen is there, and uh, I had been I had been down to visit a little bit before when Brendan was getting ready for his uh, his last fight, Jared's getting ready for his fight a week after mine, uh, you know, made some new friends too, a lot of really cool people down there, but yeah, it's, uh, they got a, a couple few guys down there that have been in the system, and even Bilal came and checked it out for a week while I was getting ready. So it was like another, <laughs> another familiar face. What did you do in Florida when you had some downtime? Is it mostly just recovery or did you get to explore a little bit? Uh, it was mostly recovery. I was a low key. Oh, I, I am always a low key guy. So I didn't really uh, get too adventurous. You know, I, I enjoyed some of the local food when I could. Um, but other than that, I pretty much kind of, you know, walked around by the beach, got plenty of sun, got plenty of rest and uh, made sure I got in the gym. And Marc-Andre Berrio, who you mentioned, he seems like he trains like a freak out there. Like, he, he, he took a trailer, basically, bought a trailer, drove down from Quebec, and just, like, made Deerfield Beach his home. He's an interesting cat. Yeah. No, nah, man. Yeah. Mark's a different cat, but I like him. He's a really good guy, and he uh, he's really good about uh, bringing that intensity every day and still, you know, being a good, safe training partner. Because there are a lot of guys like that where, like, you know, his thing is his uh, his relentlessness, his motor, and like his uh, his you know his gameness basically, and he's really shown that in his last few fights. But some guys that do that can't help but make it a fight all the time in the gym. But he's found a nice and balance of like he knows how to get good work in and, and go go hard and push the pace without being dangerous to himself or anybody else. So he's he's a great resource to have if you want to see uh, if you're in fight shape or not. Get a couple goes in with him and you'll find out real quick. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first time you're fighting in front of a crowd in like two plus years. If I recall, you were either on the January or March pay-per-view in 2020. And then, of course, we, we know what happened. And now, finally, you're fighting in front of a crowd once again. Yeah. Yeah, I was on the last uh, the last card that had 
It might have been a pay-per-view card, actually, because it was the last card. It was the uh, Wiley and Joanna fight. Yeah, it was in the was... Israel and Yoel. I, yeah, I remember interviewing you there. Yep, so that was that was the last one that I had a crowd, and now, yeah, man, it's been a minute. So I'm I'm really ready to, to feel that energy again and be in, like, a, a proper arena and, like, you know, do the whole fight week in another place and all that stuff because, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I love Vegas. I love the Nevada State Athletic Commission. You know, they always make things easy. It's the fight capital of the world, but uh, it's nice to, like, see new places sometimes and, like, really get out there in front of fans. I heard an interview with you recently that you, uh, you've switched to a new uh, ecosphere. You're now an iPhone guy. I could tell the shot is just so much clearer for this interview yeah. than it has been in the past. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I kind of got fed up with, like, I, and this is a little sappy, but obviously it's a lot easier to connect on an iPhone because all you people, like, insist on having an iPhone. But uh, really the main reason is I was missing out on uh, like getting messaged a lot of pictures and videos of my son and it was like annoying me because i'd have to ask you know to like send me them on messenger or something separately right and i was missing out on some of that so i was like you know what screw it i'll just get an iphone i can get it all directly through the the texting app and uh you know i won't have to miss out on anything anymore you know what i was an android rider die also for a time and uh, then my work said you got to switch to an iPhone because the app that I needed for uh, you know broadcasting and transmitting was only available on the iPhone. I, you know what? I'm ba- I'm back on board with the iPhone. I like it better. I I find that as a device, it just doesn't get bogged down. I found that the Androids did a lot more, but they would get bogged down a lot. I have to restart it all the time. Uh, that that's the thing that I like about the iPhone. It seems like it's a perfectly designed mobile device for that reason because it has its own operating system that is like exclusive to this one device that just uh optimizes everything much better yeah no i, I always i've heard a couple of people be like if you're a tinker and you like messing with stuff and need the latest specs and uh, capabilities then you'll probably like android hear about that but you know iphone is just so good with connectivity everybody has one you can airdrop stuff to people and all that and uh it's you know now that i have one again it is very very convenient i will say that and you know hey we got to wait a couple of years until uh, I, you know, Apple can copy whatever the Android sphere is doing and steal their technology. But that's all right. I can wait a couple of years. Oh, as long as we have those blue text messages. You know, I mean, that's what that's what it's all about. When you see that somebody has <laughs> yeah. the blue, now you now you're one of us. So you, you have you have the blue now with the with the texting. Yeah, yeah, and how fitting. Now I have blue text messages just as I come out to California, so I can be fully accepted into the culture and enjoy my avocado toast with everybody else. Yeah, there you go. You got the, the blue eye, blue eyes, blue eye messages, and now you're in the blue state, like California. So it's all, it's all coming together. Are you in the blue corner this weekend? Because that, that could really put uh, the, the cherry on You're probably in the red corner. You have more experience. Pfft, I'm probably in the... When have I ever... I think maybe twice in my UFC career I've been in the red corner. Of course I'm in the blue corner. When, when have I ever been like picked as not the underdog yeah but what's it based on though because i don't think like i don't think they look at the odds and they're like okay well this guy's gonna be the challenger i I thought it was based on like tenure if you're not ranked uh clearly it's not based on tenure if you're not ranked because i got shamayev and you were in the blue you were in the blue corner right yeah yeah there's plenty of guys that i fought that had well first of all pretty much everybody i fight at this point is gonna have less fights than me period but most guys are going to have less UFC fights than me also unless I really start getting into some higher-level guys that have been here for a minute. So, yeah, 
definitely isn't based on seniority or tenure because uh, I'd be in the right corner a lot more often if that were the case. Get Butler on the phone. Tell Butler to call the matchmakers and say you're, you're being disrespected here because you've, you've been around the block. You have records in the UFC. Yeah. You should be in the red corner. Yeah. Unless somebody has a number next to their name, that, unless they're going to do rankings for the entire division, if you're not ranked and you're facing Gerald Mearshart and he has more experience than you, he, according to me, you should be in the red corner. That's, well, that's what makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, hey man, I don't I don't disagree with you, but uh, apparently they they just like making me the underdog for some reason. I don't know, maybe because like if you've bet on me, uh, I've won more than I've lost in the UFC and all that good stuff. And generally speaking, I am the underdog. So if you bet on me every time, especially with that submission prop, you're probably doing pretty well right now. So maybe somebody on the inside is like, uh, you know, paying off their mortgage with keeping me in the underdog spot. Yeah, they're just taking the submission prop every single time and, you know, close your eyes, hope for the best. But more, more often than not, it seems to come yeah. through. Yeah, exactly. Are you coming out to DMX again this time? No, no. Uh, I'm stealing favorite song. He's not on this card, but I'm in California. I love Tupac, so I figured, you know, why not? All right, you're taking advantage of that home crowd. I like that. that if you're coming back to oh, a home yeah. crowd, you got to get them on your side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm the two of, out of the two of us, I'm the American, so hopefully that'll, like, help even more. You should also get your hair dreaded like, uh, like Faber to really, like, really do it up. Yeah, I don't think I have enough hair for that. Yeah, I don't think, I don't I don't think so either. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't appear not... that way. No. <laughs> and finally, people keep telling me about this beer from uh, Wisconsin. Do you know which one I'm talking about that's impossible to get? Have you tried? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you tried this? Oh, yeah. You're talking about Spotted Cow. Yeah, Spotted Cow. Yeah, so that's made by a company called New Glarus in New Glarus, Wisconsin. And, uh, yeah, they will not sell it anywhere but in Wisconsin. You might be able to get it shipped to you uh, if you order it directly from them. But they got a lot of different beer. Actually, uh, in my house, I have, like, you know, just as, like, in my adult pool room, a bunch of, like, road signs. So it's, like, uh, all their different kinds of beers they've got. Spotted Cow... Um, they got Fat Squirrel. There's one called uh, Two Women, um, Cabin Fever. Uh, there's like eight or nine different kinds. I, I forget them all right now, but they got a, a decent variety. But Spotted Cow is like the main one. Um, I think it's amazing. It's one of my favorite beers. You know, I, I love drinking, especially after this fight. I'm going to go up north with the family, be up in the north woods, be on the boat, and I'll probably have a Spotted Cow in my hand. Uh, but... Being from Wisconsin, we got a lot of beer. We got a lot of craft beer. I hear from a lot of people that aren't, you know, <laughs> born and raised in Wisconsin that it's a little bit thicker and hardier than they're used to. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's like a Pabst is kind of like that. I think it's more flavorful and a little bit better than Pabst. Not that I don't like Pabst, but it's it's more to that effect. It's not like, uh, you know, like your casual light drinking beer. You got to. You know, we're hearty people. We need a hearty beer. But if anybody can get their hands on some Spotted Cow, I recommend it. All right. Well, if you get your hands on some, you should mail it to me. I was in Phoenix, and I walked into a beer store, and they had a can behind the counter. I said, how much is that? And they go, no, that's just a souvenir. The owner won't sell that. Oh, yeah. Hey, give me your address, man. I'll hook you up. All right. Well, I'll take you up on that. You'll, you'll be getting a blue message from me, and we'll, we'll set that up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. All right, man. I appreciate your time as always. Best of luck against Bruno Silva this Saturday, and uh, always appreciate your time. I appreciate you, Aaron. Nate the Train is back in action, taking on David Onama this Saturday night. Always a fun, fun fighter to watch. You've uh, had a bit of a layoff since your win over Ludovic Klein. He's actually fought twice since. 
Uh, have you been hoping to get in sooner than you are this weekend? Yeah, man. I was supposed to fight back in March, but uh, end up having a little injury. But you know, it's always about the journey. I think you were supposed to face David back in March. You were then set up with uh, Zubaira. No, I was supposed to, to fight. Uh, I was supposed to fight. Zubaira. Uh, I was supposed to fight Leron uh, Murphy, but he ended up getting hurt, and then uh, Onama was going to step in. So. So this is somebody that you uh, that you're familiar with in David Onama. Um, what do you think of the matchup? He's he's uh, seems to be on a bit of a roll since uh, joining the UFC. Yeah, man, he's good. Man, he's young, strong, tall. Man, he's good. We're gonna see real quick what it's all about. And nothing you haven't seen before. You were fighting some of the toughest guys in the world as the champion of M1. What was that experience like for you? I mean, you have a, a very strong uh, southern accent. You're going out to Russia, Kazakhstan, and competing. How were you received there? Oh, man, most people really liked me. Um, I think it was a, a great experience for me. Uh, got me ready for the cameras and the big crowds. and uh, It's just something you either got it or you don't. And... Uh, it was cool, man. It was real cool. It's been an interesting road for you to, to get to the UFC. It's rare to see Americans go over to M1 and then come back to be in the UFC. Did they did they have interest in you earlier in your career at all? Uh, no, man. I mean, they probably they might have, but I mean, I never. Uh, I'm kind of jealous of these young guys that get in early, but I mean, I wouldn't change my path to the octagon for nothing. I mean, it was... I wouldn't change going to Russia and meeting all those people over there with M1. I mean, it was a great experience, and uh, I've got a lot of fans over there and a lot of memories. I mean, I fought in uh, Moscow at the Olympic Stadium for a fight, and that was cool. I fought in the mountains of Ingushetia. I mean, it's been a ride. Have any interesting stories from your time there that maybe we haven't heard from, you know, anything that happened behind the scenes? Man, I got a couple stories, but... I ain't going to tell them. <laughs> anything you can share? Any, anything, maybe trying some foods or something out there that uh, you were familiar with? I'm sure there's got to oh, be something. Man, I, we was eating some horse. I tell you that. We was eating some horse over there. They eat horse and uh, pretty good. Uh, when I was in, in Gushetia, we was with the president of the country, and we were sitting around eating some lamb, and uh, that was pretty cool with him. He gave me a little envelope with some money in it, so that was that was tight. Was he able to communicate with you? Does he speak English? He spoke a little bit, but he had a translator. Yes, it sounds like... See, these are things that people in the UFC don't get to experience. Like, nobody's going and sitting yeah, down with the president I, getting handed envelopes in the UFC. Yeah, no, that was cool, man. To sit down with the president of a country and uh, get to chat with him. and uh, See, because, you know, he's real powerful. He's the president of that country. So it was like that I'm sitting there with him and just keeping it... You know, casual and whatnot, how I do, and just a breath of fresh air, he thought. After your last uh, win over Ludovic Klein, you did your in-cage interview. It was a pretty memorable interview. I had mentioned you sounded like a guy that should have been fighting in WCW, like should have been wrestling in like the 90s. And I feel like you, if you were your current age back then, you would have had like a lot of success doing that. You've got good mic skills. Yeah, I feel like I could have been at least an action star in the 70s and 80s. Some Jean-Claude Van Damme stuff or something, you know. Some, uh... But you know what I'm saying? I just uh, enjoyed my life. I found my passion young and uh, joined the road. And I'm about to fist fight a motherfucker soon. 
But you said you found your, fat, your passion early in life. I know you played some football. You did track. You know, what, what brought you over to this realm? I just happened to try it one day and uh, felt like home, really. So I just stuck with it. Started whooping ass and the rest is history, they say. And what, what age was that for you? I was, I was going on 22, so I was a little bit older before I even realized what um, MMA was. So it's nice to start it young, but it is what it is. Yeah, I, I guess it was 12 years ago. The sport was still pretty new at that point in time. Yeah, we was fighting in bars and be like, hey, how much you weigh? Anybody weigh around this? All right, you fighting him. <laughs> That's how it got started. So, so you just took a fight on basically a moment's notice? Yeah, I mean, my first fight was pretty much I started training and fighting the same week. I had about 20 fights in two years as an amateur that I went pro. And did you find good places to train in Tennessee? I know there's not a lot of fighters that come from uh, your particular state. I think uh, I think Ovin St. Prue is from Tennessee. Uh, Scott Holtzman trains uh, in Tennessee. I mean, there's a bunch of God good guys in Tennessee. Don't get me wrong. There's a bunch of talented guys, but it's just spread out so far. It's like, uh, yeah, it's just pretty much... You got a guy over here, you got a couple guys over there, you got maybe one or two guys over there, but we all just are Tennessee savages and we want to fight each other instead of trying to train together, so <laughs> go figure, right? And now you're training in MMA Masters in uh, Hialeah, Florida. What's that like for you? I mean, how, how long of a commute is it? I, I'm guessing you're not commuting, you're probably living there when you're training there, but from Tennessee to Hialeah, it's what, about 10 hours? No, if you drive, it takes a good 16, but I fly. I fly back and forth sometimes. It's only about a two-hour flight. And your wife stays uh, at back in Tennessee? She doesn't uh, stay with you in Florida for a prolonged period yeah, of time? Yeah, she travels back and forth, too, with me. Sorry, I missed that. She travels back and forth with me on occasion. And how's she liking you know, being part of this lifestyle? Oh, she loves it, man. She's, she's my ride or die from day one. Without her, I mean, everything would be different. But what does she bring to your life that, I guess, grounds you and, and helps you succeed in this sport? <laughs> uh, she tells me the real shit all the time. I mean, she doesn't hold her punches. For sure. And uh, she's honest with me. And she's a loving wife. And she's the best thing in my life. She gives me, um, give me reason to try harder. What are the things that she tells you that coaches perhaps are afraid to tell you? Oh, she just, I mean, she tell me just straight up, uh, you know how wives are, man. You ever seen the movie Southpaw and the scene with the wife in there giving them the real talk? Similar to that. Yeah, my wife gives me more real talk than anybody else also. I've got three kids and I, she, <laughs> she gets in my for, ear when yeah. I need it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Nate. Uh, best of luck this weekend against David Onama and appreciate your time. All right, appreciate it, man. It's PFL 8 this weekend, Saturday afternoon here on the East Coast. Rory McDonald headlines against Magomed Umalatov, an undefeated fighter. You've never been this big of an underdog. Does that get you galvanized for a fight like this? I didn't even know I was an underdog. <laughs> you don't think about this kind of stuff. It doesn't, doesn't cross your mind. Not really, no. Well, an undefeated fighter, I'm sure it's always good to take away that. Oh, what, what can you tell me about Magomed and his fighting style and how you match up against him? Yeah, I've never really fought one of these uh, Russian Dagestani-style fighters before, so it'll be exciting for me to compete against that style. Um, obviously, they're 
pretty dominant since they started coming on the scene a few years back. So looking forward to it. Well, you're two wins away from a million dollars, which I'm sure was the, the prime motive for signing with the PFL. Uh, your rival last year, Ray Cooper, no longer in the tournament. What do you think of the rest of the field? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's been an exciting year. Um, lots been happening in the welterweight division with alternates popping in all the time. And kind of chaotic, but um, I'm here in the playoffs now and looking forward to uh, going and winning this tournament. Your life has changed a lot since uh, last year. You were at Sanford MMA uh, last year training for your PFL fights. Then you decided to move to Texas. Um, you said that you feel like it's really like home for you now uh, over in Austin. What do you like about the state of Texas and, and training there with uh, Tim Kennedy uh, and, you know, the, the, the whole setup you have there right now? Yeah, so I've been doing my jiu-jitsu and MMA under John Donaher and the guys at the New Wave Jiu-Jitsu uh, at Roca. And then uh, doing um, some boxing and kickboxing and fitness with Tim Kennedy and, and the guys. And it's just been a great fit for me. A uh, small group of guys, but, it, you know, we really clicked. And uh, I felt like I've made a ton of improvements. Um, I didn't show it in my last fight, I feel like. So looking forward to going out there and showing a better version of myself. There's some people in life you meet, and they have a certain energy about them. And Tim Kennedy, for me, was one of those people. The, the first time I met him, he's, he's just this charming, charming guy who exudes like a real positive radiance about him. What's it like being around him all the time and, and uh, getting to pick his brain? Yeah, absolutely. He's high energy and uh, very positive. He's super inspiring just to see how he lives his life. Uh, makes me uh, want to strive for more on my own. Uh, he's been awesome. You know, he's got a ton of experience in MMA, so I've been able to draw from that, and he's uh, really helped my fitness level uh, with his program that he, he does all the time. So I feel like that's really been a, helpful uh, to be around him for those, those reasons. Right, now, be, be honest with me here for one second. When you're with Tim Kennedy and you guys just start talking, let, let's say you're training with him, how quickly can it veer off the path into like a completely different direction? You're in a conversation with him for 45 minutes and you have to basically redirect everything back to martial arts. I don't even know if I've been around Tim for 45 minutes. He, uh, he's very busy. He's got a lot going on. So he's from one thing to the next. So I, uh, I rarely get the time to sit down and just chat with him just because of his busy schedule. And how's your family liking Texas? You got two young kids. I think they just celebrated their, their sixth and third birthday. How are they liking uh, being in Texas and moving around a little bit for, you know, in their young age? Yeah, they really love it there. Um, they've only been uh, one trip. The rest has really been myself. Sometimes my wife is tagged along with me, but I've been bouncing back and forth between there and Montreal. And who's in your corner this weekend? You got uh, is Tim going to be with you? Faraz, what's what's that, the corner look like for Saturday? Uh, no, um, John and Tim were unable to make it for this uh, this uh, this fight, so it's just going to be Faraz this time. So it's just a one one man corner. Yep, I like that. That's like going back to your roots. Uh, is that what it feels like? Yeah, it's not a big deal to me. I've, I could fight with no corner, it's, but it's good to have you know, some words of wisdom in, in between rounds. Now, I spoke to Olivier uh, at the start of the tournament. I asked him, I said, did Rory's Twitter get hacked? Because I just keep seeing all these NFT things popping up. But it seems like you're actually really into these. Usually when someone's account gets hacked on Twitter, it's because someone's trying to push NFTs on people. You're actually really into them. 
Yeah, yeah, I have been. I, I, you know, since this season started, like, I really haven't been uh, in that space because just have been focused on training and so much. But yeah, absolutely, I got into them, but only on um, one blockchain that's kind of uh, frowned upon. So it, I could see how it could get pushed as uh, as a hacker or something like that. Hold on. So why is it frowned upon? I have limited knowledge of, of this space. So I know that this is kind of the Bitcoin NFT side of things, whereas most NFTs are in the Ethereum blockchain. Am I getting this right? Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, so it's um, it's the Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. But it's a chain off of Bitcoin. So the most uh, most people consider Bitcoin under the BTC ticker. And I follow the BSV uh ticker symbol uh, chain of uh, bitcoin and uh that's in in the crypto space it's generally frowned upon they uh they call it a fraud and things like that but from my research it's the one it's the one to go with in the long term but we'll see we'll see how it plays out so far it hasn't played out well <laughs> well i mean i think you could say that for almost any uh cryptocurrency in the last couple months and and really any financial uh <laughs> market in the last couple months yeah, de definitely. Uh, everybody's get, been getting hit pretty hard. Well, it'll turn around at some point in time. It always it's always cyclical. So uh, you just yeah. gotta hold on. That's what I keep telling people. Hold on. You don't wanna you don't wanna get out when the going gets rough. You wanna stay in it, weather the storm, and then you know reap the rewards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. All right. So this is the big main event yourself, uh, Magomed Umalatov. He's undefeated. Uh, it's the main event. It'll be Saturday afternoon here on the East Coast. It'll be in the evening on Saturday if you are uh, local in, in London. Uh, is this your first time fighting in the UK? I fought here once before, probably five years ago. Oh, that was the Paul Daly fight, right, in Bellator? Yes. Okay, and, and how did you enjoy the, that atmosphere? Obviously, you were uh, not the... Uh, I guess you were coming into enemy territory that time around. This time, it's going to be more of a neutral territory. Although, you know, Canada, we, we have the queen on our, on our dollar. It might be more of a, a hometown for you. Yeah, no, I got a great response last time. I uh, I really enjoyed fighting in London. Uh, hopefully Cardiff's the same same way, but the fans were awesome. I loved it here. And one last thing I want to ask you about. Your last fight against uh, Sadabu C. It was another kind of similar situation to your fight against uh, Gleason Tebow, where the judging was, you know, it was kind of an interesting fight, close fight. I think this fight was a lot more, a lot closer than the Tebow fight that uh, the judges gave to him. Uh, well, what's your takeaway from that uh, particular fight? And also, another thing I want to ask, when you kind of know you're in the playoffs, and I think this kind of happened with Anthony Pettis when he fought Stevie Ray the first time, you know, is it, is it harder to kind of get up for a fight like that where you know you're already going on to the next level and you probably just want to avoid taking damage and, and make sure that you're fresh for the playoffs? Well, for me, it didn't have a factor because, I, you know, I've, I had bigger aspirations um, going into that fight than just playoffs i really felt like this was the year that i needed to get my name in uh, in people's mouths again um, instead of just being a guy who has accomplished something in the past and he's kind of still around i wanted people to uh you know i wanted to make a, a resurgence sort of so to speak and um so it didn't really play a factor but unfortunately the fight did not play out the way i was hoping to um I didn't perform the way I had trained, and uh, it just I made some mistakes out there. So I just got to adjust and and you know focus on 
resurging my name in this next performance and going forward. What do you put that on? Was it just kind of a bad day for you? It, you know, that'll happen to a mixed martial artist from time to time. Uh, or do you feel like you may have, may have put a little bit too much pressure on yourself? I think a little bit of both. Um, I, I made some mistakes leading up to the fight mentally. I think I closed my mind off to uh, other weapons that uh, were at my disposal, but I didn't use them. And uh, ended up having the performance I did. Was it about having kind of a set game plan that you didn't stray from that you may, maybe you should have in real time? Yeah, and I wouldn't even call it a game plan. It was just mentally in my head, believing that I was so much better than him on the ground, that that was going to be my route to victory. Um, never really gave it a, a, a second thought about kickboxing with him. Just felt like being on top of him was going to happen, and that's how I was going to put him away. And I should have kept a little open a, a more of an open mind especially for a mixed martial art fight so is that a lesson you're going to carry into this weekend where it's just you got to go with the flow a little bit more absolutely all right well we look forward to seeing it come to fruition it's this saturday uh the main event of pfl8 appreciate your time as always rory thanks man good to talk to you it's a massive opportunity for aaron jeffrey this weekend he steps in for anthony adams to take on Austin Vanderfer, the number two ranked middleweight. Now, I'm sure when you signed with Bellator, you probably thought you'd have a, a shot at getting to a title shot a little bit quicker than the UFC, but probably not this quick. Yeah, man, it's crazy. I'm uh, jumping the line for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity. And Austin's just coming off of a title shot himself. Does that give you some confidence knowing that he just suffered his first loss, or do you think he's going to be more dangerous because of that? Yeah, it's hard to say, man. It uh, totally depends on him, you know, like... Some guys come back super hungry. Maybe he uh, fixed some mistakes. Um, I don't know. Maybe some guys it kind of mentally breaks them because it was a tough loss. So uh, I guess we're going to find out in a couple of days. You're wearing a shirt with a big ruby on it. Your manager is Danny Rubenstein. That's uh, the logo of his company. So walk me through that conversation. He calls you and says, this opportunity is available. What's your thought process? So this actually started like maybe a month ago. So I, I knew one of his guys was fighting Vanderford. Um, and I said to uh, my agent, not Danny himself, but Jake Sage is his name. Um, I was like, Hey, maybe, maybe your guy is going to get injured and I'll be able to step in. And he was like, well, that's a Ruby guy. So no, I don't really hope he gets injured, but like, you never know things happen. And then, uh, early last week they gave me a call, Danny and Jake, and they said, Hey man, were you serious about that Vanderford fight? And I said, yeah. And they're like, well, our guy might be injured. He hasn't pulled out yet, but, uh, he's doing like some medical tests and we're going to find out. And I was like, yeah, man, if, if it happens, put me in. Um, and then a couple of days later, things are official, and here we are. See, so you spoke it into existence. Exactly. Dream, believe, achieve. That's, <laughs> that's my new thing, man. I, I, I think it really works. <laughs> well, there you go. I guess that's what The Secret is. I, you know, that book, The that's, Secret. And man, it's something that Conor McGregor is very like, passionate about. Exactly. Well, there you have it with uh, that particular fight. Um, and with Vanderford. Like, where do you think a win does put you in this division? If he's number two, usually that means that you kind of at least come close to taking that ranking. It would at least move him down. But you'd probably be in the top five, no doubt. Yeah, I don't know exactly how that works. I mean, rankings are weird, right? It's kind of subjective sometimes. Um, so I don't know if I become number two or if, like, they just slot me in somewhere in the middle, like number six, and he becomes number seven. Uh, I don't know. The current champion, Johnny Eblen, he's been incredibly impressive. Uh, what do you think of him? I, I think, personally, he can hang with anybody in the world in your division. Yeah, I agree. He's good, man. Uh, he's good everywhere. Good striker, good grappler. 
um, just beat a legend of the sport in Musasi. So, yeah, he's, he's definitely a tough fight for anyone. And I know you did some of your last camp at Sanford. I imagine all of this camp was done in Niagara Falls. You were back home and you found out all this information? Yeah, um, all of this camp as in like three days after signing the fight before getting out here, yes. Uh, but no, I've, I've been back in Niagara since, uh, since my last fight. And your last fight was just, a, just about a month and a half ago. No lingering injuries or after effects from that fight? No, man, nothing. I went in healthy and I came out healthy, thankfully. And what do you think Vanderford does best? Like, if you, if you were to say, this is what the biggest problem he's going to bring to me is, what would that be? Uh, wrestling, for sure. Everyone knows he's a, he's a great wrestler. His shots are fast. He changes his attacks well. He's heavy on top. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely the wrestling. But that could end up being a stalemate, right? I mean, it's going to be uh, a great wrestler like yourself against a great wrestler like him. If it, if it takes place on the feet... You've been known to swarm guys and, and make them pretty uncomfortable. Do you think that that's something that will benefit you against a guy like Vanderford, who kind of, you know, in the last fight against Musasi, got a little bit overwhelmed? Yeah, I think so, man. Uh, like I said, we're going to find out. We're going to see if I can shut down his wrestling, and we're going to see if my pressure can, uh, can yeah, shut him down and, and kind of make him break. Who's going to be in your corner for this weekend's fight? Uh, same as last one, Chris Prickett and Lyndon Whitlock. All right. Well, best of luck to you, Aaron. It's a fantastic opportunity. Glad to see that you're the one who got it. Always nice to see rising Canadians in the sport. You got Oban Mercier fighting for a million. You fighting for a top five spot in the middleweight division. It's a good time to be a Canadian MMA fan. Thanks for this. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. Always appreciate it. Big thanks to all of our guests here on the TSN MMA show. Shout out to Dominic Cruz, to Nate Landwehr, to Gerald Mearshart, to Nina Nunez, to Rory McDonald, to Aaron Jeffrey. Thank you all for joining me on this week's TSN MMA show. And thank you, the listener. Always appreciate you for tuning in to the TSN MMA show. We are a weekly podcast. You can subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Please, uh, if you can find it in your heart, to leave us a nice review, nice rating. We would appreciate that. If you have some time to go to worldmmaawards.com and vote for yours truly as Journalist of the Year, I would appreciate that as well. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk MMA on a week-to-week basis. And look forward to doing it again, of course, next week to recap UFC Fight Night, Cruz versus Vera. And look ahead to uh, some more great action in the uh, UFC and otherwise. So until we get to that time, we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.